We're going to be in the book of Zechariah, where we have been. So if you will turn to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, or the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. Yeah, all the lights up, great, thank you. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sharitzer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? And then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your heart against one another. But they refused to pay attention. And turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And just as He called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scatter them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate." Father, your word is at times so comforting and so encouraging and just builds us up and fills our hearts with joy and and with peace. And then there are those other times, Lord, where your word cuts right to the heart, where you give a word of conviction. And so, Lord, I, I... timidly ask that you would with grace convict us this morning. Every one of us. Every last person in here throughout the day. Might we, Lord, be convicted by your word because we know we have a loving Father who desires only the best. Holy Spirit, come and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to take a show of hands here. Sometimes that's not wise. But I would imagine a few of you perhaps watched the AMC series Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad ran for five seasons from 2008 to 2013. And it made the Guinness Book of World Records in 2014 as the highest rated show of all time. More viewers watching the show from start to finish than any other show. Set in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Breaking Bad is a story about Walter White, a struggling high school chemistry teacher who is diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer 
And he put his chemistry skills to work producing and selling crystal meth so that he could secure a financial future for his family. At least that was the reasoning. It even spawned, perhaps you heard about this last week, an action figure. A Walter White action figure with detachable bags of cash and methamphetamines. As, as recently as last week, you could pick those up at Toys R Us. <laughs> they got pulled from the shelves because of some complaints. What's interesting is the show's creator, Vince Gilligan is his name, explained his own thoughts about the idea of moral consequences. That really was what drove his writing of the show, is, is his thinking about and pondering over moral consequence. In a New York Times interview back in July of 2011, Vince Gilligan had this to say, and I found it fascinating. He said, if religion is a reaction of man and nothing more, it seems to me that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. Can we agree with that? We don't want the wrongdoer to get away with stuff. We want the wrongdoer punished for it. Justice makes us all feel a little bit better. Well, he went on to say, I hate the idea of Idi Amin. You remember the Ugandan leader back in the 70s who caused the death of of countless uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Uganda. I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. As in, he got away with it. Gilligan goes on to write, That galls me to no end. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I like to believe that there is some comeuppance, that karma kicks in at some point, even if it takes years or decades to happen. Gilligan continues, My girlfriend says this great thing that's become my philosophy as well. Here it is. I want to believe there's a heaven. But I can't not believe there's a hell. That spun me around. This is a quote-unquote non-believer. This is not a, a Christian man. This is just a guy out there in the world. And he says, I'd love to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. There's got to be a hell for the Idi Amin's, for the Hitler's, for those who somehow get to their end without their comeuppance in this world. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's an amazing statement. I can't not believe there's a hell. Why not? Because of justice. Because there is something inside of all of us that cries out for divine justice of some sort. For there to be mercy, there has to be justice. Without justice, you do not have mercy. Sin must be fairly dealt with. But here's the problem everyone sins. We all do. Period. That's the deal. We all do wrong to others. We all have done wrong to ourselves. We all have done wrong. Period. It's our propensity. It is embedded in our very nature. And the proof is look at society. Look at what just happened in Marysville. Why school shootings? Why does this kind of violence continue to happen? Why are all these bad things continuing to go on in the world? Because we have a sin nature. And if we were truly evolving into a better species, things would be better in the world. They're not. It's the sin nature. And you know, the real problem is that we have this sin nature because God granted us freedom. Because God made a decision. I need to take you all the way back to early in the Earth's history. 
to a man named Cain. You know the old story of, of Cain and Abel. The first murder that would take place on planet Earth was Cain murdering his brother Abel. Cain comes to the Lord with an offering, a kind of pathetic offering. Abel offers a perfect offering, or not a perfect, but the best that he had. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, and not so much on Cain's. And Cain got jealous. And Cain got angry. And he began to seethe with this bitter jealousy at his brother. And the Lord comes to Cain, and he says the following. Genesis 4, verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Which is so true. I mean, parents test it out on your kids. When they do well, you say, good job. What do they do? (laughs) Their face lights up. God says, Cain, if you're doing the right thing, you're going to look good. You're going to feel good. Your face is going to be smiling. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must master it. Must master in the Hebrew is the word mashal. And so you might hear God saying, Control it, Cain. Control it. But it wasn't a command. God wasn't saying, You must. He was not commanding Cain to control it. In fact, the word form there, the verb, is in the imperfect form. It implies incomplete action. Action in process. You've got to learn to deal with this, this thing called sin. But the Lord knows, as much as we try, we can't control it. Every one of us are eventually overtaken by our sin nature in one way or another. It catches up with us. Even the best of us, even the Billy Grahams of the world lose their temper. Even the Pastor Ricks don't always treat their family right. I know, it's a shocker. <laughs> But Jeremiah 17, verse 9, tells us the the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now, while I can't recommend Breaking Bad for your viewing pleasure, I've never seen it, what I've read is that it gruesomely portrays the truth about man's heart of darkness. That you can have the best of intentions, but when you begin to do the wrong thing, you spiral downward. Which is the whole point of that show. But what the show does not fully answer, finally to the very end of it, is what does it take to break the bad in me? How do I break from that? And I believe the reason, by the way, God gave us choice in the first place was not to be nice. I believe the reason God gave us choice was so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. We've talked about this before, but in case you missed it, do you realize that what God did in creating this world and creating you and me and giving us free choice was much bigger than us? That it wasn't just that he wanted to do this thing with us, experiment and play around with this love thing. No, there are beings in the heavenlies and God's saying, look, I'm going to teach you grace. I'm going to teach you something of my nature. And the only way to truly do it was to create beings who could freely choose to love Him or reject Him. And so God does this to teach. It's always been bigger than humanity. Well, that's the backstory. Let's come up to Zechariah, chapter 7. Two years have gone by since last Sunday. Doesn't it feel like that? (laughs) 
It's been two years since that night of visions for Zechariah. And now it's December 518 B.C. In the fourth year of King Darius. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. So that's comparing with Ezra chapter 6. If you compare the two dates, we know the temple was still two years away from being rebuilt. They were rebuilding it. It was in process, but it would be another couple of years before the finished product. Ezra 6.15 tells us this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, the twelfth month. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So here we are in the fourth year of his reign, two years to go till the temple is finished. But understand this. The exiles at this point have been back in the land for more than than a dozen years or so. And they are trying to learn how to do it. They're resettling the land. They're back, but they're trying to learn how to live in a post-kingdom world. Can you imagine living in a post-American world? You know, I think maybe 20 years ago, a question like that would have been like, well, that'd be weird. But you ask a question like that today, and I've I've thought about that all week. What would it be like to live in a post-American world? A world where this country no longer is what this country has been. And I am prayerful that the Lord Jesus comes back, but I am also not sure that we won't see those days of a post-American world. I'm not pointing that out to depress anybody. What I am trying to say is think about where the people of Israel were when they came back. Think about what it was like for them. They come back into this, into this land. This time not into the promised land gloriously coming in to conquer. They come back a conquered people. They come back now under the thumb of Persia. Yeah, they get to rebuild Jerusalem. Yeah, they get to rebuild the temple. Wonderful. But they're still an oppressed people now. They are in a post-kingdom world. And in that world, as they begin to think about how they're going to live, how they're going to survive, what life is going to be like now, the town of Bethel, house of God, the town of Bethel sends a delegation on a 12-mile trek south, down to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, we're told, the town of Bethel sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have these many years? That singular question sets up a two-chapter answer. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are together the answer of the Lord to that single question in two parts. Chapter 7 is a reality check. Chapter 7, the Lord goes back and says, let's talk about how we got to where we are right now. Chapter 8 is a response of comfort because it all looks forward. And we're going to deal with that on Wednesday night. I would encourage you to be here. Because what we deal with this morning is a little heavier. It is conviction. It is a reality check. What we deal with Wednesday night is the response that is comforting. But again, this delegation is headed up by two men. Look at their names. Sharitzer and Regimelech. Sharitzer and Regimelech. Sharitzer means prince of fire. Regimelech means king's friend. Friend of the king. But it's not the meanings of the names that are so significant here. It's the fact that the names themselves are pagan. These are not Jewish names. They're not traditionally Jewish. You're not going to find them, in fact, anywhere else in the Bible. you find them just right here. These are pagan, Babylonian, Assyrian. In fact, uh, Sharitzer is an Assyrian name. 
Ragimelech is a, a Babylonian name. We have this obviously Jewish task force sent down from Bethel to Jerusalem with clearly Jewish concerns, should we keep this fast in the fifth month, led by two men with pagan names. Why? They grew up in Babylon. So growing up in Babylon, having been there for 70 years, uh, birthed in Babylon, uh, trained, raised up in Babylon by parents who lived in Babylon, they have Babylonian names. In fact, the entire Jewish calendar, even today, is Babylonian. Did you know that? The months of the Jewish calendar are Babylonian months adopted when they were in captivity in Babylon. What's the point? See how easy it is to conform to culture? They were there 70 years. Doesn't seem like a real long time. Seventy years from the point of being brought into the land to when they get to go back. And in 70 short years, they have already begun to pick up the names and the culture and the dates and the calendar. They're, all, they're, they're just taking it on. It is so easy to do. And we do the same thing without even thinking about it. Conforming to culture. Culture is comfortable. I like my culture. I like the way we do things here in America. It's celebratory. We have certain holidays and and festivals and things that we keep here. I grew up doing these things. I love it. Fun things. In fact, in a few days, one of my favorite cultural traditions growing up is about to happen. (laughs) You knew I was going to talk about this. (laughs) Halloween. I grew up with this. You know, the Charlie Brown Halloween, carving pumpkins, costume parties, trick-or-treating, goblins, and and great memories. Well, I don't mean to toss rocks into your candy bags. (laughs) But parents, have we thought it through? Have we considered what it really means and what it really is that we celebrate with this holiday called Halloween. I confess, as a young dad, I did not think it through. I didn't want to. I wanted my kids to have the same fun trick-or-treating with ghosts and goblins and cobwebs and skeletons that I had as a kid because it's what I knew. Conform to culture. And now this time around, we've got kids again. And we struggle with this whole issue. My friends, what are we naming as our own? What are the Regimeleks and the Sharitzers in our lives that we're saying, that's mine. That's what we do. Are we stopping to ask the question, why do we do it? Why do we adopt the cultural things that we adopt? Some of you parents might think right now, I don't want to think about this either, Rick. You're messing with one. I've been told that about about Halloween because I've messed with it before and I've had people say, don't mess with Halloween. (laughs) Don't mess with the candy, Pastor Rick. Like, I'll buy you candy, okay? But listen to what the Bible says. Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I shouldn't tell you about this. I'm going to. (laughs) We're in staff meeting last week. Brian, you don't even know this. Brian was sharing with the staff there are a couple of words not, not cuss words per se but a couple of words that, that are pretty common in our culture now that, that people use one is what a vacuum cleaner does you know what I'm saying okay and, and at a staff meeting Brian brought it up he said you know these two words just, I, I'm hearing them and from, from staff and he goes I just 
I'm uncomfortable with that. He said, we're supposed to be sanctified. And by the way, I love the way you said sanctified, Brian. He said, we're supposed to be sanctified. <laughs> I'm like, yeah! I'm, I was ready to give my life to Jesus right there. <laughs> Remembering I already did. <clears throat> we're sanctified people. And there's, why, why do we use these words? And so I'm like, yeah, you're right. Good point. Everybody got that. Let's, let's, let's adopt an attitude of sanctification. Brian, dude, the next morning I walked in. <laughs> it's not going to have the impact because I'm not going to say the word the way I said it. But I walked in and I was checking in at Eva's office and I said, uh, Cheryl, you know, Cheryl's birthday was the day before. And she goes, how was Cheryl's birthday? And frankly, it was not a good day. In fact, it sounded like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and bro, it came out of my mouth before I even knew it. I said, oh, Cheryl's birthday blanked. <laughs> and I just went... <laughs> Because it echoed throughout the whole foyer. We all got to deal with culture. We don't want to be uptight, you know, so straight-laced that we can't break a smile without fear that we're going to do something wrong. That's not the point. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? I think a lot of people wouldn't know that. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John says in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now the upside is that the Lord is at least working with these two men. That these two men are accepted. In fact, they're written in Scripture. Their names are there. And the Babylonian names for the, for the Jewish months are there. Kislev is a Babylonian name. It's there in Scripture. God's like, you know, I, I get it. I understand you live in the world. I understand that you have to be in the world. Just don't be of the world. And so these two men come, Sharitzer and Regimelech, and the Lord works with them. And the Lord responds to their question. And the Lord shows them grace. And I think it's because they had come out of Babylon. They were out of Babylon. I'll tell you, one thing I know about these two men is that these two came back with the exiles. They didn't stay put. When they had the chance to come back to the land and serve their God, they did. Good guys. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 6 says, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in their punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. And understand that Babylon wasn't just a world power then. Babylon isn't just a picture of the world now. Babylon will be the seat of world power in the reign of Antichrist. And so the book of Revelation, repeating almost what Jeremiah said, Revelation 18.4, John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, that is Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. You want to break with the bad? Come out of Babylon and seek the favor of the Lord. That's one of two reasons why this, this delegation was sent. To seek the favor of the Lord. Note that. To seek the favor of the Lord in verse 2. That's why they came. They came from Bethel. Originally house of God. Originally the, the school of the prophets was there in Bethel. But my friends, Bethel ended up being one of two seats of godless worship, idolatry, in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
It was one of the worst places, a center of false worship, and now the inhabitants of that same town come down to Jerusalem, not worshiping a golden calf in Bethel like they used to, but they come down to Jerusalem to seek the favor of the Lord. I like that. Apparently, Bethel wanted to make things right. Wanted to set the record straight. They wanted to break with a bad past and be right with the Lord. So, they come seeking the favor of the Lord. Is that, is that why you came this morning? Did you come seeking the favor of the Lord? Have you come seeking the grace of Jesus Christ? See, that's, that's His offer. Seek His favor. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I mean, there's the punchline right there. How do you break with the bad? You come to Jesus who is only good. And by His grace, He causes this to happen. But there's another reason, an important reason for this trip. This committee sent from north. And it's a question. They wanted to seek a fifth-month clarification. Note this again. They asked the question, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Background. For 70 years, apparently, the people have been holding a fifth-month fast to commemorate, to memorialize the loss of the first temple. And it's possible, I can't say with absolute certainty, but it's possible this was the start of a Jewish day of observance that continues to this very day called Tisha B'Av. It may very well have started right here. Tisha B'Av. Every August, August time frame for us, us, the month of Av happens. And every ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av means the ninth of Av, Jews around the world, and especially in Israel, pause and remember the calamities. The more observant Jews will spend the day in fasting. Tisha B'Av, the Mishnah talks about the five calamities. And here they are. On Tisha B'Av, they say the 12 spies return with a 10 to 2 negative report resulting in the people's failure at Kadesh Barnea before they went into the promised land. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That was the first calamity. The second calamity on Tisha B'Av, 586 B.C., the first temple was destroyed. Tisha B'Av, on seven, in 70 A.D., same day, Rome destroyed the second temple on the 9th of Av. In 135 A.D., Rome crushed the Bar Kokhba revolt. And the year following that revolt, the fifth calamity, Rome plowed under the Temple Mount and the entire surrounding area. Oh, but that's, that's not the end of the calamities. It, it continued on from there. The first crusade in 1096 began on the 9th of Av. In that crusade, 1.2 million Jews were killed. On the 9th of Av in 1290 A.D. 10, did I say 1096 B.C.? I mean, it was 1096 A.D. Now it's 1290 A.D. And all the Jews were expelled from England. Driven from their homes. On the 10th of Av in 1306 A.D. All Jews were expelled from France. And on the 7th of Av in 1492... As Columbus sailed the ocean blue, hoping, I think, to found Indigenous Peoples Day. 
in that month, in fact, listen to this, the dates. On the 3rd of that month, Columbus sailed. On the 4th of that month began the Spanish Inquisition, which drove all the, spoo- all the Jews were expelled from Spain. He sailed on the 3rd. The Inquisition started on the 4th. We know Columbus was a Christian. We know he was a strong believer. In fact, he felt like he could circumnavigate the globe because the Bible said the world was round, even though everybody else knew it was flat. And I've told you before, that's why we know science just does not get it. Science is always catching up to what Scripture has already told us. And that has been born true time and time and time again. When science says, we don't understand this, and the Bible says it, it must be wrong. Well, how do you say that? The Bible's always right, and we've seen this over and over. The Bible says that the earth is a ball hung in space. Who could believe something as weird as that? And yet we know it to be true. But they didn't at that time. And so he sailed. And there are those who believe, though Columbus was a Christian, that he was quite possibly also Jewish. And that that may have been part of the reason that he sailed and got out of there on the third, having a heads up on what was coming. Finally, and there were many more tragedies of the Jews over the years, but it was on the 9th of Av in 1941, SS Commander Heinrich Himmler received formal approval from the Nazi party to begin the final solution, the mass extermination of all Jews on the earth. And you know the outcome was, we say 6 million, they think it may have been upwards of 8 million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. But before all that tragic stormy history, the Jews had already initiated this day had already initiated the fifth month fast. The fifth month is the month of Av. They're already fasting in this month, and they come asking, should we continue to do this? Understand, the Lord didn't ask them to. There's nowhere in Scripture where God says, in every fifth month, I want you to commemorate the fall of the temple. Be sure you do this with a fast. He he never said it on the calendar. He, he, He never mandated them to do it. Should we keep... Weeping and fasting in this month was their question. Let me ask you, should we celebrate Christmas? Man, right, Halloween and Christmas? <laughs> Messing with the whole fall. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, God never asked us to celebrate Christmas. He never put that holiday on the, on the calendar. Is that a bad thing that we celebrate Christmas? I don't think so. We'll talk about that when we get closer to Christmas. I think it's fine, but God never told us to. Well, what about keeping the Jewish feasts and festivals? There are a lot of Christians in the world today, a number of them, who are thinking, we need to go back and keep all of the... We need to keep Jewish law. We need to keep those feasts and festivals. We need to do that. We need to only call Jesus Yeshua, even though the Greek New Testament, inspired by God and written primarily by Jewish people, is written in Greek. So if we're going to call Jesus anything, we should probably call him Jesus. Or Yeshua. Or Jesus. Just call his name. But there are things in our lives that we are not told what to do about. They were not told to keep this fast. We are not told to have Christmas. We are not told, you know, exactly. So, listen to the answer of the Lord. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me. And by the way, you'll notice that. He says it four times in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Twice in chapter 7, twice in chapter 8. And it kind of breaks down the two chapters. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? 
Why'd you do it? That's the issue. It's not what you did, it's why. Why'd you fast? Why'd you stop eating for those, that day or that week during that month? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? The problem wasn't adhering to this fast. The problem was the attitude about the fast. It wasn't an issue with the ritual. I mean, ritual in and of itself, there are all kinds of rituals we have. But the way you brush your teeth every morning. Wives, you've seen your husbands do it. They do it the same way every day. It's a ritual. Okay. There are all kinds of rituals we do. Just because something's a ritual doesn't make it bad. But what's the attitude behind it? What's the recognition of God in it? God says, was this about me? Or was this about yourselves? Was this fast to remember that I am your God? Or was this fast to hold a pity party? Turn in your Bibles. Keep your finger there and turn over to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So it's, what, six books in to the New Testament. Romans chapter 14. As God's talking to these people, and the question is again, did you fast in worship or did you fast to wallow? What's the reason behind it? Verse 5, Romans 14. One person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, note this, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So whether you eat or whether you fast, the point is not the eating or the fasting. The point is, are you doing it unto the Lord? Christians today who want to keep the Jewish feast, the issue is not, are you keeping the feast for yourself? It's, are you keeping the feast for the Lord? If you want to keep Shabbat every week for the Lord, if you want to keep Pesach, the Passover, every year for the Lord, and you want to do it unto the Lord and worship to the Lord, more power to you, man. And if you don't keep those days, just keep the day to the Lord. If you fast, fast to the Lord. If you eat, eat to the Lord. If you celebrate, celebrate to the Lord. By the way, that's the key to Christmas. I love Christmas. Because it is a celebration of God punching a hole in time and coming into this world in flesh. And we'll talk about that soon. Unto the Lord. That's the point Paul makes. Verse 7 he says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do we do what we do? William Tyndale wrote centuries ago, and I have to kind of translate this because it was a bit Elizabethan, so bear with me. He said, "If, if after you have heard so many masses and matins and even songs or, or vespers, and have received holy bread and holy water and the bishop's blessing or the cardinals or the popes, if after all that, you will be more kind to your neighbor and love him better and be more obedient to your superiors, more merciful and ready to forgive, 
If you more despise the world and are more thirsty for spiritual things, then do such religious observances increase grace. If not, they are a lie. If you come here on Sunday mornings and you're taking communion, Jesus left us two rituals, by the way, just two, baptism and communion. He said, when you give your life to me, when you're born again, I want you to get baptized. I want you to get washed. I want you to experience kind of the idea of burial and resurrection. I give that to you. And communion, which we take here at the bridge every week. The bread representing the body, the blood, or the, the juice representing the blood, right? We take that. But if you take it for yourself, you're missing the whole point. Because it ain't about you. It is about Him. And so the Lord asked the question, was it actually for me that you fasted? Let me ask you, did you come today for Christ or for the coffee? (laughs) Did you know, last week, there were some people, and it was a madhouse here. It was a glorious madhouse. It was wonderful insanity. It was blessed craziness. But there were people that got mad when we ran out of coffee. Got angry with, with, with Jackie. I heard that and I was angry. Gang, in case you didn't know, this is not Whidbey Coffee. This is the Bridge Christian Fellowship. This is not that other place with the mermaid logo. This is the Bridge Christian Fellowship. And nowhere are we mandated to provide sweet snacks and hot handcrafted addictive substances. Where do we get off coming into church to worship the Lord and then getting angry because it's not the way I want it to be? And by the way, where do we get off getting upset because worship didn't really touch me today? Really? Is that why you're here? Why are you worshiping? Is it for you? Or is it for Him? Now this is not coming from me, my friends. This is coming from the Lord. This has been the conviction I've had to sit under all week long. Jesus dealt with the food issue, by the way. Same idea. The snacks, the coffee that's out there. Man, it's just done as, as, to honor the Lord and to fellowship. And, and Jackie has this heart for hospitality so that God's house feels like our home. It's just a warm, welcoming place to be. And I think that's great. Jesus said in John 6.26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Oh, I go to that church because they have the best muffins. I kid you not. They're awesome. You really got to try those muffins and their coffee to die for. I don't know what they worship there, but the food. Jesus said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. So if you come here and you come through these doors and we pray that you continue to do that, you come for, for Jesus. You don't come for Pastor Rick's sermon. Oh, he was funny today because he said the coffee thing. I thought it was, you know, the mermaid. <laughs> That's not why you're here. You're here for Jesus. You're here because Jesus loves you and desires relationship with you and wants to be with you. And we want to learn more about Him, so we open the Word. And we want to honor Him, so we sing and we praise. We have got to deal with this. Why did I come? What is this about? What's it for? Now, for the non-Christian person, 
I hope it is to seriously consider if this is all legit. I welcome that question. And I encourage you, believers, to bring your non-believing friends and just say, just come and ask questions. Just come and listen. Come and look and see if this is authentic. If it's bogus, if it's churchy, if it's weird, then go ahead, go home. That's not what we're about. So for the non-believer, come and test this. Ask the question, is there really a God who loves me? Can that be verified in Scripture and in history and in archaeology and all these things? Ask the tough questions. The Lord's not afraid of those. Bring it on. But for you, Jesus' people, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, he said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Verse 7. The Lord goes on and says, Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited, what's God saying? He's saying, This has always been my word. This is not a new thing. The fact that I even have to ask you, why are you holding the fast, tells us something, that you have forgotten what I have been saying for eons now, for centuries. It has never been about religious observance. And it is not today. Even for Israel. God has always been about the heart. He has always been about keeping it real. He has always been about a genuine, authentic relationship. That's what He desires. That's what His Word proclaims. And yet we, human beings, make it religious. And we get wrapped in the ritual. The Lord was the one, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4, who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what He wants. That's what He's looking for. When we do what we do for Jesus, the heart is healthy. When we focus on selves, we end up breaking bad. Look at verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. The Lord gives five key people groups here. When he says, what I want you to do, how I want you to live out and act out this love relationship with me, is I want you to dispense justice and practice kindness and compassion. Here are the people groups, widows. He says, you know what, the widows, they're your responsibility. They're my responsibility. They're our responsibility. In the New Testament book of Titus, there's even a widow's list. That is... Here are the requirements for a widow being on the list for us to take care of and look after her as a a church family. Care for the widows. They're your responsibility. He says, care for the orphans. That's the second group. Again, these are my charge. And James writes in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, and it's the only time the word religion is used in the New Testament. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. It's very simple. 
The third group he mentioned, strangers. <laughs> and we got to deal with this one. Because strangers is foreigners. Strangers is the alien. Strangers are those far off. Which was every single one of us before we came to Christ Jesus. The alien. What are we going to do as a church? I'm not asking what should our government do about the borders. What are we going to do as a church fellowship for people coming across the border looking for life? Please do not read politics into this because I actually have a very different political view than I have a religious view and I'm not sure how to work the two together. I'm still working on that one. But spiritually speaking, children, parents looking for some kind of a better life What is our responsibility as Christians to them, to the stranger? I'm going to just let that hang out there. But I think we need to address it. Because whatever takes place on our borders, the borders that matter to God eternally are the kingdom borders. So the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the poor. The poor are number four in that group. And Jesus said we'd always have the poor with us. Implication. You've got to continue to take care of them because they will always be there. There will always be people in need. There will always be people hurting. There will be, always be people who have lack. Yeah, but they got themselves into that place. I don't see that caveat anywhere in Scripture. I just see, take care of the poor among you. But I want you to consider the last and easily most neglected group on the list. You see it there? One another. One another. He says, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And this is more than just premeditated evil. We're not talking about sitting around going, how can I get him? How can I take her out? You know, that's not the point. Even thinking badly about another. The wording here is clear. Or making a wrong or unfair judgment in my mind against another person. This can be as quick as a glance or as long as a line of gossip. But devising evil against one another is anything I think negatively toward another person. Dispensing kindness and compassion to one another. Don't miss this. This is how we keep Christ at the center. How does that work? Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that one is almost easier because all I need is some good worship music and I can do it. I come to church and I can feel holy and I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said that's the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So here's the deal. The way we treat each other in the Lord has a direct and immediate effect on our love for the Lord. Perhaps you've heard the phrase. I hate saying it, but I'm going to say it again. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. And when there are breakdowns in the family of God, our eyes are not on Jesus. Bridge Fellowship, now I am, I'm speaking preemptively here. Because I have loved the last 11 years. And I have loved how simple it's been. And I've loved how, how easily we hang out together. And I've hated this cord going down the back of my shirt. But speaking preemptively, going forward, 
Loving God and loving my neighbor are intricately and intimately intertwined. We have to be called to both. If we are going to present the love of God to this world, it will not work if we don't express love for each other in this fellowship. It's a must. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We are talking, yes, about one another as in the family, this family, the larger church family. Our brothers and sisters. Now that doesn't mean that I'm saying my neighbor is not the non-believer because the non-believer is my neighbor neighbor as well. But within the church, you're my neighbors. You're my family. You're my brothers and sisters. I am called to love you even when that's not easy to do. What about loving non-believers? Well, of course we're to love them. But listen and understand this. The way we treat each other in the Lord has a direct and immediate effect on our love for the stranger, for the outsider. So it's really threefold. I I love the Lord. I, I stay in the love of God by loving my brothers and sisters. And in doing both, I express the love of God now to those who are on the outside, who don't understand that, who haven't felt that. And therefore, draw them into this this whole love relationship. You, You can talk all the time about evangelism, but if at the same time you're ragging on the church, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And I've heard Christians do it a lot. I've done it. We've got to be more evangelistic. Oh, this church. These Christians. Those church people are so messed up. But we've got to be evangelistic. <laughs> you can't love the lost and hate the church. If you don't love it here, why would you want to bring someone here? Jesus said, By this all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the way this is going to work, our second Sunday in this behemoth of a building, the way it's going to work is if we love each other more. Let's just love each other more. More fellowship. More hugs in the foyer. More togetherness. More love. Now, there are those who would say, well, okay, pastor, but aren't there people, outsiders of certain lifestyles that you wouldn't welcome here? My immediate answer to that is no. There is nobody, nobody that I would not welcome here. As long as they're seeking the truth. And I have to put that caveat in. I don't care how messed up a person is. I don't care how how twisted and, and, and sinful by biblical definition their life is. But if they walk through the doors going, I need Jesus, they are welcome here. But if they walk through the door saying, this is who I am, then I have to say, well, I'm sorry there's only one I am and you ain't him. (laughs) There is one exception, one exception to all of this, and it is not an exception to my charge to love all people in Jesus' name regardless of who they are. But, but, there's one exception to the welcome of the Lord himself. 
And that exception is stone-cold rebellion. Look at verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Reality check, Israel. You guys were breaking bad. That was the issue. Your hearts were like flint. The the Hebrew word flint there is shamir. It means adamant. And not like we use the word adamant. I mean, they were adamantly opposed to the Lord. But in the King James, it translates this well, the word shamir. Adamant stone. An adamant stone is the hardest of mineral stones. It is a stone that is used to cut other stones and to cut through metal, and itself it cannot be cut. And they made their hearts this way. God said, you made your heart so hard, there was nothing that was getting in. I sent my spirit. I talked to you through the prophets over and over. They refused to pay attention. That's the first thing that he says. They refused to pay attention. Let me ask you this. Do you know how many prophets God sent? In the Hebrew scriptures alone, we have 55 named prophets. Over the span of Israel's history, 55 different people. God sent with his word to say, soften your hearts, come back to me, let's get into this love relationship again, deny yourself and come to me. 55! And Luke 16.31 says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Which, by the way, Jesus did. And yet the world still pushes back. They refuse to pay attention. The second thing he says is they, they... Where is that? They turned a stubborn shoulder. Literally, they gave God the cold shoulder. The Hebrew here is interesting because what it describes, the phrase is, they pulled the shoulder. It's not a good thing to do, husbands, when you're arguing with your wife and she puts a gentle hand on your shoulder and you're... <laughs> That's what it means. God tries to put his hand on his shoulder through the prophets and the Jewish people went, no. <laughs> and finally, they stopped their ears from hearing. Do you hear the process? The hardening of a heart doesn't happen all at once. It is a process of hardening that begins by refusing to pay attention. I'm just not going to listen. I don't need Bible study. I don't need that church stuff. I don't need what, you know, God in the world. I don't need that. I'm not going to pay attention. Secondly, it's pulling the shoulder. Someone says, hey, Jesus loves you, man. (sighs) Pulling the shoulder. And finally, they stopped their ears from hearing. You get to a point where your ears get so clogged you can't even hear God even if you wanted to, but you don't because you're in a place of stone-cold rebellion. Isaiah 6.10 says, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. This is adamant stone. And followers of Jesus, you know this verse, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away, don't miss this, some will fall away from the faith. That seems to indicate that there are believers whose hearts will go hard. Church people who, like outsiders standing in rebellion, will drift into rebellion, will fall away. 
Paying attention, Paul writes, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars and seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, adamant stone, flint. And that kind of rebellion simply refuses the grace and the mercy of God. That's the person who can't come through the door because they won't. Because they reject it. Verse 13. And just as, note this, and just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. That's interesting wording. God says, Yahweh says, he called and they wouldn't listen. Who he? It's Jesus. We're talking about Yeshua, the Spirit of Christ, speaking to the people through the prophets over and over, calling to the people, calling out to the people. He's been calling all along. He's calling this morning. Now listen up. I asked earlier, earlier, what does it take ultimately to break the bad? Because we all start out that way. We all have that tendency. We all have that propensity, that sin nature. What does it take to break the bad in me? Verse 14. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have known. Thus the land is desolated behind them. So that no one went back and forth, for they made, they made, they made the pleasant land desolate. They did it. To break them of their adamantly stony hearts, God drove his people out of the land by what he calls a storm wind. A storm wind of his divine and disciplinary anger. And gang, it was nearly a thousand years of Israel in the land that God tried to get their attention. So don't tell me God's not patient. Again and again, 55 named prophets and other prophets and prophetesses as well sent to the people, calling out to the people over and over, Jesus saying, come back to me. And after almost a thousand years, God finally said, there's only one way I'm going to break this heart of stone. And the storm wind blew and drove them out. The land desolated behind them because of their rebellion. And by the way, note that rebellion desolates. You can rebel. You can choose to rebel against God. You will desolate your life. Because that's what rebellion does. But you know what's awesome? We get down here to the end of chapter 7. And you've got to remember something here. The people were back in the land. In fact, come to think of it, the people are back in the land. The second time. The first time, he blew that storm wind and drove them out to Babylon. Seven years later, he brought them back. The second time, he drove them out again. AD 70. Dispersing the Jewish people all over the world. Guess what? They're back. Such is the grace and mercy of God. And this points out a great truth. That the storm wind of the Lord, the disciplinary anger of the Lord, was to serve the purpose of bringing the people back. Breaking the heart of stone that they might love him again. And here's a sneak peek about where it goes. Look over in chapter 8, verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. You're not going to fast anymore. The day is coming where there will be no such thing as commemorations, memorial days of sorrow. It's all going to be joy. By the way, of those two things that I mentioned earlier that we commemorate, baptism, 
and the Lord's Supper, do you realize that both of them look forward? That baptism looks forward in, in that picture of resurrection to our actual resurrection. And communion, while we commemorate the Lord's death, we do so to proclaim it until He comes. So we even take communion looking forward. There's joy in that. But here's what it takes to break the bad in me. God uses two similar words. Two words and we're done here. Two words are used in this passage and it is my choice as to which word will apply. And the first word is sa'ar. And it is that storm wind, that whirlwind, that stone breaking. Whirlwind mentioned in verse 14. But there's another word. Another wind. It's mentioned in this passage in verse 12, and it is the Ruach, the Spirit of God. The storm wind of God will break the heart of stone. The Ruach will soften the heart, if you'll allow it to, if you'll accept it. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That was his desire for Israel. That's his desire for us. You can choose the Sa'ar. People do. And the storm wind will come. Because God will go to the very ends of the earth. He will allow desolation to hit if it might possibly turn someone around for eternity. That's His hope. And so people choose Sa'ar. I want the storm wind. I want to do it my way. Well, your way is going to break you. Or you can choose the Ruach, the Spirit of the living God. You can be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Why did you come today? Why do you keep coming? Vince Gilligan again said, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. There is a hell. And there is a heaven. And God would break the bad in you and break the bad in me that we might be with Him forever.